You're listening to The Drag. It's May 23rd, 1885. It's a busy week in Austin, Texas. There's a carnival at the Scottish Rite Masonic Temple, formerly known as Turner Hall. There's a small fire in someone's kitchen. And a local woman dies of the, quote, fearful disease, smallpox. And the citizens of Austin fear an outbreak. According to the city physician, the woman's husband unknowingly spread smallpox while he was mourning her death. The man and a handful of other people he came into contact with are ordered to quarantine. This is all fairly typical for the developing city of Austin, Texas. Construction continues on the new Texas Capitol building in the heart of the city. Just a few blocks north of where the Capitol will soon stand, Irene Cross is fast asleep after a long day of work. She's 33 years old and a widow, but she lives with her son, Washington, and her nephew, Douglas. She's a black woman who works as a domestic servant and lives in a small outbuilding on her employer's property. Austin has been terrorized by a series of brutal attacks on primarily black and immigrant domestic servants for the past five months. Two women are dead, but it's been three weeks since the last attack. Irene wakes in the middle of the night. Her nephew sleeps in an adjoining room, but there's a stranger in the room she shares with her son, Washington. Washington is 17, and Irene is used to her son coming and going at night. He works in one of Austin's saloons. He often forgets to lock the house door, a deadly decision on this particular night. The stranger stands above Irene as she and Washington scream for help. The attacker lunges towards her with a knife, slashing at her twice, leaving a six-inch gash in her right arm and a cut above her right eye, reaching halfway around her head. A report in the Austin Daily Statesman newspaper the next day said, It looked as if the intention had been to scalp her. Irene staggers out into the yard, maybe trying to call for help. Her employers wake up and help her to a bedroom where she waits for a doctor. She's still conscious when police and reporters arrive. A reporter manages to ask her if she'd recognize her attacker. She groans and shakes her head. Her eight-year-old nephew, Douglas, did see the man, though. Douglas is quoted in the newspaper as calling him a, quote, big, chunky, Negro man, barefooted, and with his pants rolled up. While it's doubtful, a traumatized eight-year-old said this verbatim. This is one of the first physical descriptions we get of the killer. Douglas says the man wore a brown hat and a ragged coat, and he carried a pocket knife. Irene later dies of her wounds, becoming the third victim of an unknown assailant who seems to be following a pattern. That morning, the statesman headline reads, For butchery, another colored woman terribly stabbed by an unknown fiend. This is episode two of Devilish Deeds. I'm Megan Parker. This podcast is about the serial killer that terrorized Austin, Texas in the late 19th century, known as the Servant Girl Annihilator. The death of Irene Cross happened just a few weeks after Eliza Shelley's murder and nearly five months after the murder of Molly Smith. Molly's murder was the first of this killing spree. In the time between Molly and Irene's deaths, dozens of black domestic workers have been terrorized at night, with people throwing rocks at their windows or rattling their front doors. It seems that the attacks are becoming more frequent and more terrifying. There's something else going on here, simply because of temporal proximity. You kill one black woman one week and then kill another black woman Less than three weeks later, in the same city, under similar circumstances, people are going to start to get worried. That's Dr. Lauren Henley, 
the University of Richmond professor who studies crimes committed against black women. If these murders happened today, the murder of Irene Cross would be the third in a series, officially giving the perpetrator the title of serial killer. But... This is a point in U.S. history and in criminology writ large in which the word or the phrase serial killer just doesn't exist in the English lexicon. So it's not that people understand these to be serial murders in the way that we think of it today. That is a very modern term, almost, I guess, 100 years after these murders. It is coined um, by folks in the FBI to understand a particular type of criminal that's appearing mid 20th century or so. And at that point, their concern is really about catching these people. So their definition originally involves three or more victims over a sustained period of time with defined cooling off periods. Um, I'm not sure that that in and of itself is a useful definition for a series of murders like this, because it's not as if people in 1880s Austin were walking around thinking there's a serial killer on the loose. <laughs> they didn't have that frame of reference in the same way that we do today. Jim Miles, the owner of Walking Tours of Austin and our guide from the Murder Walk Austin tour, agrees that people would have had absolutely no idea of what was going on. It is arguably the first serial killer in American history. I would say definitively. I mean, uh, and and from that, you know, it fascinates me how the murders affected the city as a whole. All right, because at the time, murder and still, it's a deeply personal thing to murder someone. You know, that's like that's it's often the husband, right, or the wife or the boyfriend, because you know to do what happened to these bodies in particular, there's rage involved and usually a very intimate and personal relationship that had gone south at some point and on some level. But this is different. Okay, so here we have these ghastly murders that appear to be void of deep personal relationships. And um, random, even? My gosh, that's terrifying. That the only motive may have been some sick twisted blood lost fetish we understand that today as students of serial killers but at the time they didn't imagine putting a puzzle together and you're missing whole pieces uh freud hasn't even finished his work at this time you know people don't understand a mind that can do this in early june a few weeks after irene's murder there were three break-ins at the homes of domestic servants in north austin near the University of Texas, an institution that had opened its doors just a few years prior. One of the women is shot through the window of her home. Her employer, a university professor, runs toward her living quarters with a pistol. Bullets fly past his head, but the shooter gets away. The second attack that night is a repeat attack. Two black domestic servant women wake up in the middle of the night to someone throwing rocks at their window. Three months after they'd woken to the sound of someone trying to break in to their living quarters. According to Skip Hollingsworth's book, the women even asked a friend, a black man, to sleep in their living quarters with them for protection. He chased the rock thrower away with a gun, exchanging bullets, but the attacker gets away again. Three days later, the Austin City Marshal, Grooms Lee, speaks to the Austin Daily Statesman. He's read the criticism of him and his department, and he wants to weigh in. I try to do the best I can with the few men under my control. That I have too few with which to properly guard the city, every man who will give the subject the least attention is bound to admit. The fault is not with the men, 
They are assigned to certain beats and expected to stay on them. The trouble is the force is too small. Not only was the Austin police force unorganized and small, but policing in the 1880s had close ties to racist norms. It's important to note that the earliest form of policing in the United States was slave patrols. Remember, it's 1885. The Civil War ended 20 years ago and Reconstruction ended only seven years ago. The memory of slavery is not distant by any means. Even though slave patrols stopped with the end of the Civil War and the passage of the 13th Amendment, they formed the foundation for policing as we know it today. Slave patrols intended to quash potential slave uprisings and capture escaped slaves. Patrollers were armed with guns, whips, and bloodhounds and had the jurisdiction to go into any house they deemed suspicious of harboring a runaway slave. The beginning of Reconstruction further fueled white people's fear of, quote, bad blacks. Even though slavery was over, the patrolling system was still in place, this time backed not by slave owners, but by actual police forces and the KKK. In 1885, Reconstruction is over, but the Austin police force is still finding its footing. Again, the force is small, and they've never seen crimes this gruesome. The citizens of Austin are unhappy with the police's handling of the murders, and they start to pressure city leaders to increase the number of officers. But after those early June attacks, the murders and terrorizing seemed to stop entirely. Going through page after page of the Austin Daily Statesman archives, we couldn't find even a single instance of a midnight rock-throwing incident, or a domestic servant waking up to the sound of someone trying to get into our front door. and it's a really convenient time for the attacks to stop. Austin is a city on the rise, and it's a very important summer. Colonel Jesse Driscoll has just begun construction on a brand new hotel, promising to be more elegant and grand than anything ever built in Austin. The Driscoll Cornerstone, the ceremonies to eclipse anything held in Austin for years. It's July 4th, 1885. At least 4,000 people, a little more than 30% of the city of Austin's entire population, have gathered on Pecan Street for the laying of the cornerstone of Colonel Driscoll's new hotel. Austin businessmen are presenting Driscoll with the cornerstone as a token of their respect and esteem. Electric lights twinkle above the townspeople, a novelty for a city lit mainly by gas lamps. A brass band entertains the growing crowd. Some of Austin's biggest names speak in honor of the momentous occasion, and the cornerstone is laid. Afterward, attendees retire to the Pearl House, a saloon in the city known for having the finest rooms to rest in, decadent food, and, quote, unequaled beverages. Champagne and hors d'oeuvres await the guests. Mayor John Robertson gives a toast. To the capital city, with the natural beauty of its location, the salubrity of its atmospherical influences, and a proper diversification of its labor and investment of its money, no city in the state has promise of a more healthful prosperity. But just when Austin residents have been lulled into a sense of safety and security, it's ripped away once more. On August 30th, 1885, the killer strikes again. I want to include another trigger warning here because this is the attack that's the most difficult to talk about and the most difficult to hear. You might want to skip ahead if you're worried about hearing graphic details of the death and abuse of a child. Rebecca Ramey and her 11-year-old daughter, Mary, are asleep in their employer's kitchen. They've been too afraid to sleep in their servants' quarters and they know they're safer inside the main house. 
Here's Dr. Lauren Hinley again. So they are vulnerable because even though they physically reside on the same piece of property as their white employer, they're also limited in these sort of spaces, these shanty houses, these outbuildings um, that do not have any form of security, really. That's not the point of engaging in domestic labor. It's to provide labor for this white household. They don't really care if their domestic servants are particularly comfortable. And it's not as if Black folks have very many other options, right? This is legal segregation. It's not like they could buy the house adjacent to their white employer, even if they could literally afford to do so. The laws prohibit them from occupying those same spaces. So they are vulnerable um, in a lot of ways. Rebecca and Mary work for a family that lives just two blocks southeast of where the cornerstone was just laid for the Driscoll Hotel, and just one block north of where Eliza Shelley, the second victim, was killed. Sometime between 4 and 5 a.m., after months of no nighttime attacks, the killer breaks into the kitchen where Rebecca and Mary sleep, striking Rebecca and knocking her unconscious. The attacker turns his attention to 11-year-old Mary and hits her too. He drags her out of the kitchen, rapes her, and then drives an iron pin into both of her ears. Mary's mother, Rebecca, lays on the ground, bleeding from her head. It's 5 a.m. when her employer, Valentine Weed, finds her in the kitchen moaning. Weed asks her what happened, and she responds, quote, I don't know, I'm sick. He notices that Rebecca's 11-year-old daughter, Mary, is missing. He immediately knows what happened, that his two domestic servants were the latest victims of whoever has been terrorizing women at night, and he calls for police and a doctor. Weed grabs his gun and goes into the yard to look for the 11-year-old girl. He opens the door to the cabin in the yard and finds Mary inside. He notices a small pool of blood on the floor, and he runs to greet the doctor and the sergeant, who arrive with bloodhounds in tow. He leads them to where Mary lays in the cabin, and the pool of blood has grown five to ten times larger. A neighbor sends guard to make sure nobody enters the backyard as two more police officers arrive. 11-year-old Mary Ramey dies about an hour after her body is found, right as the sun rises. Jenna Cooper, the records analyst at the Austin History Center, told us that Mary Ramey's death changed everything. This is kind of where it takes a turn towards, you know, what what is this killer's pattern? Um, people are already freaking out by this time um, because they're starting to see, okay, we may have somebody on the loose who... Um, started out with a pattern, but now he's moved on to young girls. But the killer did leave behind a clue that even the unskilled Austin police can see. It's the same clue left behind after Eliza Shelley's murder, but with a twist. It's a set of footprints created by bare feet. So the police set out with a pack of bloodhounds, hoping to track the scent of the barefooted man. The tracks led from the cabin to the house to the gate then into the neighbor's yard, where the hounds let the officers into the stables. Inside, they find Tom Allen, a black man, and arrest him immediately, with no evidence at all, other than the fact that he was in the stables when the dogs arrived, and the dogs went that way. This is exactly how so many arrests happened during these killings, and there were several arrests. Investigators and the public were so confident that a black man had to have committed the crime, they arrested any black man who happened to be around. Over a hundred years later, the police force's deeply rooted racism still haunts the black population of Austin. Incidents of excessive force and discrimination against the black community are commonplace. 
Bad practice even runs down to the material that's used to train police officers, which perpetuates racism and creates harmful stereotypes. And we talk about these murders assuming they were perpetrated by one man. Dr. Lauren Henley, the professor who has extensively researched these cases, isn't convinced. So yes, a bunch of black men are rounded up in Austin, but I'm not sure the police really think that it's a single man who's doing this, right? Because of those preconceived ideas of criminalization. They either think that it's a copycat killer, multiple men who are working on this at the same time. Um, But the fact that it could be like one person, I'm I'm not sure the authorities really, really think that. And that also gets back to the fact that serial murder is not a concept at this point. Yeah, early forensics, it's wild. As you just heard, forensics aren't really a thing at this point. So when police arrest Tom Allen for the deaths of Irene and Mary, they use what they've got. They measure his feet and compare them to the footprints on the scene. It's a match. But 16 hours after the attack on Rebecca and Mary Ramey, a doctor examines Tom Allen. According to an article in The Statesman, the doctor says, quote, very conclusively, that Allen couldn't possibly have raped Mary. The newspaper doesn't say how the doctor reached that conclusion. Despite the doctor's statement, Allen remains in jail for another two weeks before he's released. The story of the attack on Rebecca and Mary Ramey makes headlines not only in Austin, but also in San Antonio, a bigger city about 80 miles south of Austin. And since the story is spreading, so is the assumption that the perpetrator has to be black. The San Antonio Express newspaper writes, The fact that the victims are almost exclusively confined to servant girls of the colored race is adduced as proof that this outrager and murderer begins to the lower ledge of society. The reporter goes on to say, quote, probably a Negro. Back in Austin, the statesman continues to criticize not just the police force, but the police marshal himself and even the city government. Two days after the attack on Mary and Rebecca Ramey, the statesman writes, Wretched administration everywhere, in public affairs, in wretched streets, in the green scum that floats on fetid pools, even along Congress Avenue, in the deadly smells that ascend from the alleys and backyards with disregard to the ordinances. Two days after that article, a statesman reporter adds, The name of Austin has never suffered more through brazen-faced crime than it now does. Here's Jim Miles, the guide of the Murder Walk Austin tour. It was considered inconceivable that a Caucasian person could commit these murders, not because they were murders, because the ghastly nature of the murder. So what does that suggest? That there's a more beastly nature to to a black person than a white person. So all that is an undercurrent to this. And it's not, it's outrageous, it's racist, it's all those things. But you know what? It's also really dangerous because it can allow a murderer to go free. Uh, to avoid, you know, um, detection, which may have happened here in Austin for well over a year. Unknown to most of Austin at the time, Hope arrives in the city shortly after the attack on Mary and Rebecca Ramey. It's the noble detectives. They're sort of like the Texas version of the famous Pinkerton detectives, though not quite as famous or impressive. The three investigators, based out of Houston, show up a few days later in secret. Mayor John Robertson will later tell the city council that he wanted to keep the presence of the detectives quiet so the accused killer or killers won't know they're onto them. 
But maybe keeping the detective's secret wasn't the best idea on the mayor's part. Because despite their investigation, on September 28, 1885, the killer strikes again. Around 1 a.m., William Dunham, a well-off white Austinite, wakes up to a disturbance. He thinks he hears the sound of someone jumping through the window of the servants' quarters in the backyard of his house, which is located on Guadalupe Street, right near the University of Texas. It's not the first sound Dunham has heard from the cabin in his yard at night. It's where his domestic servant, Gracie Vance, stays with her boyfriend, Orange Washington. The couple woke him up earlier in the night, laughing and talking as he got home from church. Two of their friends, Lucinda Boddy and Patsy Gibson, were sleeping over that night. They made a pallet on the floor, like when you stay overnight at a friend's house as a kid. Sadly, their sleepover takes a terrifying turn. After Dunham hears the crash of a window, he hears a woman scream. He grabs his gun, thinking that it's Orange beating Gracie. Racing outside, Dunham finds one of their friends, Lucinda, tussling with the man outside the front gate. The man hits Lucinda, and Lucinda runs to Dunham. She throws her arms around him, crying for help. She's terrified. So terrified that she doesn't realize that wrapping her arms around him prevents him from firing his gun or doing anything to scare off her attacker. The man runs away, too far away for Dunham to shoot. By this point, the commotion has woken the neighbors. One tries to contact the police, and a few officers arrive on the scene as the attacker runs off. Several neighbors see the man run past their house. They even find a horse that they think the man might have ridden on, and a couple men empty their revolvers shooting at him. But, no luck, he gets away. Everyone's been so occupied tracking down the attacker, they don't realize what's happened. All four people staying in the cabin have been attacked. Lucinda is still outside with Dunham. She has a skull fracture, and the neighbors rush into the cabin. Orange Washington lays on the bed with multiple head wounds, and he's barely breathing. He has a gash across his scalp, all the way down to the bone, and his skull is fractured. He dies before investigators leave the property. Patsy Gibson, the other friend that was staying with them that night, is in the room with Orange's body. She's badly injured too. A neighbor finds her laying on a pallet on the floor where she'd been sleeping. She has a skull fracture and a four inch long gash across her forehead. The neighbor asks her what happened and Patsy says, quote, I don't know, I'm burning up. There's something else in the room with Patsy and Orange, an ax. Dunham swears he doesn't own an axe, and says Orange and Gracie don't either. No one has any idea where it came from. They realize Gracie Vance is missing, and then they notice the trail of blood. It starts in the window and leads outside. The attack on Gracie is perhaps the most violent yet. The attacker hit Gracie in the head, dragged her out of the cabin through the window, threw her over a fence and continued to drag her for more than 75 yards. He then raped her and beat her to death with the brick, leaving her to die in a patch of weeds. The newspaper says that her head was, quote, almost beaten into a jelly. They find a watch near her body, probably belonging to her attacker. Lucinda tells police the man hit her with the sandbag repeatedly, yelling at her. She thinks she recognized the voice. She says it's a man named Doc Woods. When she'd thrown her arms around Dunham earlier in the night, she had told him, quote, We are all killed, and Doc Woods did it. 
two of the four people attacked have died. But based on nothing more than Lucinda's testimony, police go looking for Doc Woods. He's a black man who lives on the other side of the river, about six miles out of town. The city marshal, Groomsley, and a deputy sheriff think he might be the owner of the horse they find near the scene of the attacks. Turns out, it's not his horse, so they release him. But they do arrest another black man who says the horse is his. Once again, Austin police are rounding up any and all black men they can find who have even the most tenuous connections to these crimes. And then, the city marshal and the deputy sheriff decide they do want to arrest Doc Woods after all. So, they track him down again, this time at a farm where he's working in a cotton patch. Even though the farmer swears that Woods was on his farm eight miles south of the city, the night of the murders, the police arrest him. They say Woods is wearing bloody clothes, which doesn't make much sense considering it's more than 24 hours after the murders. Why would he still be wearing clothes covered in his victim's blood? They take the blood as a sign of guilt. Plus, they let Lucinda Body, who was still hospitalized along with Patsy Gibson, get a good look at him. And she says she's certain that he's the man who attacked her. Days later, Patsy would tell police that Woods showed up at Orange and Gracie's cabin a few nights before the murders, demanding to be let in. Patsy and Gracie were the only ones there at the time, but Gracie sent him off. Woods isn't the only man arrested for the crimes. Oliver Townsend, a black man, is taken in too. And he's someone who police know really well. A Statesman article from June 1885 calls him perhaps the most expert chicken thief in America. They call him, quote, the enemy of fowls. He's written about in the papers a lot, mostly for petty crimes like carrying a weapon, disturbing the peace, or simply for being intoxicated. He's clever, too. He's reportedly broken out of jail and escaped police custody a few times. But the newspaper regularly reminds its readers that Townsend is a chicken thief and that he often robs the hen houses in the dead of night. At one point, he's even accused of killing the chickens. So, he's seen as an obvious suspect. But, his wife says he was home all night the night of the murders. It didn't seem like Austin residents could get any more panicked about the murders, but they do. The day after Gracie and Orange are killed, the statesman calls for justice once again. This thing has gone far enough. It must be stopped at any and all cost. And, unsurprisingly, the statesman declares once again that the perpetrator must be black. Heretofore, these attacks have been made on Negro servant girls, with one exception, and as far as could be found out by Negro men. The statesman reporter goes on to say that Austin's black community is just as entitled to protection as any other residents of the city, but that the real problem is that the longer the murderer is allowed to go free, the more likely it could be that he would start killing white residents of Austin. If impunity is longer allowed, we will be startled some morning by the announcement that some gentleman's family have been murdered in their beds. It is time now that it should be considered the business of every citizen to become a guardian of life and property. Then, the statesman calls for citizen vigilance. The reporter wants to quote, organize the citizens of every ward into detectives and patrols to keep watch and ward day and night in every part of the city. You can imagine what these citizen detectives could turn into. 
and how dangerous this could be for black men in Austin. It's 1885. Lynching is a horrific reality for black men in the post-slavery era all the way through 1950. One of the last confirmed lynchings was in 1981. Historians generally agree the practice of lynching began in the late 1870s. It's a method of asserting white supremacy by unlawfully killing black people, often by hanging, but also by mutilation, torture, and being burnt alive. The process usually starts from an accusation made against a black man of a crime, which leads to a violent mob that kidnaps and consequently beats and murders the black man before the trial. Lynchings were a group activity, mostly done by the KKK, but sometimes police officers and other members of the community would participate. There were even widely circulated postcards with pictures of black men hanging from trees above a crowd of smiling white people. Lynching victims were often accused of killing white people, having sexual relations with white women, or even making them slightly uncomfortable. To be tried for not only one, but five confirmed murders and multiple attacks was reason enough for Oliver Townsend or Doc Woods to be lynched. Theories start flying about the motives of the murders. The statesman speculates that it could be the work of a secret organization of black men who want to stop black women from working as sex workers and instead ensure that black men and women live together in married bliss. That theory pops up due to speculation that Orange Washington and Gracie Vance were living together unmarried when they were killed, and that could be why they were targeted. Another theory is that the murderer practices some kind of black magic, or that he's possessed by the devil, and that's why he keeps getting away. Meanwhile, the sale of guns and ammo are on the rise. Remember the statesman's call for citizen detectives? The call was just two days after the attacks on Orange and Gracie when citizens wanted the accused arrested or lynched for the crimes. These men aren't even protected from lynching as they sit in a jail cell, awaiting judgment for crimes it seems likely they didn't commit. On October 1st, a reporter visits the hospital to check on Lucinda Body and Patsy Gibson. The two women attacked the night Orange and Gracie were killed. They're both in bad shape and neither can talk. Patsy's brain is, quote, oozing from the wounds in her skull every few moments. Lucinda's skull is crushed in. Both of the women surely suffer from some sort of traumatic brain injury. After leaving the hospital, the reporter visits the jail where Woods and Townsend await their trials. Woods swears, again, that he was on the farm outside of town the night Orange and Gracie were murdered. He says he only met Gracie a few times and that he didn't know the other women. Townsend says he was at church the night of the murders, which is where Gracie and Orange were too. He says his mother can vouch for him that night, but nobody else can. He also says he didn't know any of the other victims. The reporter also visits the man who owned the horse found at the scene of the crime. He's still in jail too. He says he left the horse outside when he'd stop at the store the night before the murders, and when he came outside, the horse was gone. The only reason police arrested him is because he heard about the murders and told the police sergeant that he thought the horse might be his. So, he remained in jail for weeks. Even though Townsend and Woods' connections to the crime seem tenuous, the noble detectives are hard at work on the case. They come across a lead that prompts the statesmen to congratulate them on their quick and efficient work. They find an eyewitness. 
a black man who says he overheard Woods and Townsend plotting Gracie's murder, and maybe even some of the previous attacks. The man, named Johnson Trigg, says he followed Woods and Townsend as they walked towards Gracie's house the night of the murders. Trigg heard Townsend say, quote, I'm going to kill Gracie tonight. Next on Devilish Deeds. There's this, you know, continuously simmering fear that really boils over in December of 1885. And it's a large quantity of Austin's Black male population that is forced into this (laughs) rigmarole. And that's different, though, because we tend to imagine serial killers are white men. Like, that is the trope that exists in pop culture. But that's not true. This podcast is hosted, reported, and produced by me, Megan Parker. It's also reported, written, and produced by Mina Anderson and edited by Katie Pinchik-Outka. Sound design by Matt Bolin. Robert Quigley and Katie Pinchik-Outka are the executive producers. This podcast is presented by The Drag, a student-run audio production house at the University of Texas at Austin's Mooney College of Communication. The associate producers are Cameron Greiser, Sewa Olivares, Bethany Stork, Miranda Vilches, Kadeja Balde, Ashley Misnazi, Lori Groby, Lakin Nauman, and Sumaya Malik. Thank you to our voice actors, John Bridges, Christian McDonald, Emmanuel Ogu, Kosi Maloku, Gerald Johnson, Kevin Robbins, Raul Hernandez, Emily Quigley, and Robert Quigley. A huge thank you to Leslie Schrock for all of her support and guidance. We also want to thank Dean J. Bernhardt, Kathleen McElroy, Rachel Davis-Mercy, Allison Dawson, Kathleen Mabley, Ann Jorgensen, Emily Quigley, and Jay Whitman of the Moody College of Communication. And special thanks to Robert Philwalk and Ann Sellers. Additional sound effects are from zapsplat.com. The Drag is a nonprofit educational organization that is made possible by donors like you. Please support our work by going to thedragaudio.com slash donate. Every dollar goes directly to producing more content like this while giving students an amazing educational experience. Thank you.